Blog Talk Radio. I'm Robert Rogers, and this is Parkinson's Recovery. This show is going to be focused on the challenge that over half of the individuals who have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease contemplate and suffer with, and that is depression as well as anxiety. I know for a fact that some individuals are so so depressed they're not even able to listen to this show. So hopefully that doesn't comprise you. Our very special guest today is an individual who I would view to be the national, if not international, expert on everything there is to know about the connection between depression, anxiety, and the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. She exclusively works on approaches that people can consider which will address how you can get sustained relief from the challenge of depression as well as anxiety. So it's my high honor now to uh, play for you the first segment of my pre-recorded interview with Dr. Roseanne Dobkin. My very special guest today is Dr. Roseanne Dobkin, who is a Ph.D. licensed psychologist and an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. Dr. Dobkin specializes in helping patients with Parkinson's and their family members cope with the non-motor aspects of the condition, such as depression, anxiety, and sleep disorders. Her work has focused on the development of a non-medication treatment package for depression in Parkinson's disease that is designed to meet the specific needs of the patient as well as their families. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Dobkin. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it is a pleasure um, to be speaking with you on your show. Um, so I guess I can, you know, start out to just tell you a little bit about myself. Um, you know, like you mentioned, Robert, um, I am a clinical psychologist in New Jersey, and I'm also on faculty at Robert Wood Johnson. Um, and the majority of my work, both in terms of my research um, and my private clinical practice over the past eight years, has focused almost exclusively on the treatment of the psychiatric complications in Parkinson's disease. Um, and I have been particularly interested in using non-medication approaches to help people with Parkinson's as well as their family members cope as effectively as possible with the various aspects of the medical condition. Um, and one really important issue that I focused on has been the development of a cognitive behavioral therapy program um, for people who have both depression and Parkinson's disease. Um, and just to take a step back, because cognitive behavioral is sort of this fancy, jargony term, um, basically what that is, also known as CBT, it's a type of talk therapy that addresses the way in which people's thinking patterns and their behaviors influence their mood. And it's based largely um, on the seminal work of a psychiatrist, Dr. Aaron Beck. So just to be clear, you know, I didn't invent CBT, but what I have done is I've thought pretty critically um, about the various components of CBT and how they can be best applied, you know, to meet the specific needs of people with Parkinson's. Um, actually, interesting of note, I actually just um, finished data collection on the largest randomized control trial that I'm aware of to date 
um, looking at CBT versus treatment as usual um, for depression and Parkinson's. And we had 80 people um, complete the study, and I'm still, you know, in the process of looking at the data, but so far, you know, the preliminary results do look pretty promising, and I hope to build upon this and foster even larger clinical and research programs, you know, dedicated to optimizing the management of some of these non-motor concerns. There are obviously a lot of chronic illnesses and conditions out there. How did you become interested in working with people with PD? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've always been very intrigued by health psychology and behavioral medicine because I'm a really strong believer in the mind-body connection. So before I started working almost exclusively with people with PD, you know, the majority of my past work really entailed treating concerns like depression and anxiety in the context of other medical conditions. I had done a lot of prior work um, with people with heart disease, cancer, and chronic pain. And then I started working at Robert Wood Johnson back in 2002, and they have a very large and well-known um, movement disorder specialty clinic. So shortly after I started working here, I had the opportunity to collaborate with a lot of wonderful colleagues in neurology, and then as a result, to work very closely with many people with Parkinson's and their families. Um, and in doing so, you know, I was really struck by a couple of things. I mean, I guess first and foremost, I was um, really shocked to see, you know, the significantly higher rates of depression and anxiety that occurred um, in people with Parkinson's, you know, compared to other medical populations. And then I was additionally struck by the lack of the evidence base that was available to really guide the clinical care for these folks and really the fact that no work at that point um, had been done to look at, you know, non-medication or coping skills approaches to treating those concerns. Um, so I decided that I would like to try to do something to change that, and I was fortunate enough um, to get a five-year career development award from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke you know, to support me in those efforts, which has been a great thing. How wonderful. I understand that you are conducting a survey to better understand barriers to mental health care utilization in PD. What prompted this initiative? Um, so as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, we know that concerns like depression and anxiety are really common in Parkinson's, and they're not only common, but they're associated with a great deal, you know, of disability and distress um, for both people with PD and their families. And even though, you know, these concerns are prevalent and common, um, they're frequently, you know, underreported by patients and underrecognized and undertreated by healthcare providers. So I'm conducting the survey in order to develop a better understanding of, you know, where and why this process falls apart, you know, as well as what strategies might be useful as at least the initial or first steps, you know, to correcting the problem. So, you know, as an example, I mentioned earlier on this randomized controlled trial I just finished conducting for depression and Parkinson's. And that program was met with an overwhelming response from our local community. You know, there were a lot of people that contacted me that wanted to participate, um, but they couldn't either because of transportation problems, you know, geographic restrictions, or physical disability. And because it was a grant, I was able, you know, to work with some of those folks and either arrange transportation, you know, or figure out, you know, some alternate way to get them involved. But I know that in the real world, when people don't have the resources of a grant, um, those types of things aren't always feasible. Um, 
which leads me to believe that things like transportation and, and physical limitations could definitely be barriers to people accessing the care that they need. You know, in addition, other folks that I've met at various you know, support groups and workshops have shared with me you know, they have not previously sought treatment because they thought nothing could help them, nobody ever gave them a specific referral or helped them to follow through on the referral. Um, you know, local resources weren't available in their community, you know, or they didn't really know how to access those resources. So, you know, I feel pretty confident that these experiences are not unique to me or to New Jersey. Um, I think that the survey provides a great opportunity for people, you know, all across the country to really document their experiences um, as well as their needs and preferences regarding mental health treatment and to tell me a little bit more from their perspective, you know, what can be done to improve the access and quality of care that they receive. Because um, I think we have to identify, you know, what actual barriers are um, or even what barriers might be for somebody in the future um, before we can start to work towards overcoming them. You have certainly piqued everybody's interest. What does the survey entail? Oh, I am happy to tell you about that. Um, and I actually, before I go into that, just want to mention because I know that we've been talking a lot about depression and complications, that I want to hear from as many people with Parkinson's as possible. So all people with Parkinson's are eligible to participate in this. A history of depression or anxiety um, or mental health treatment is not required. Um, so responses from everybody are welcome. So that being said, um, the survey is anonymous. So nobody's name is going to be associated with their responses. I will never know um, if you answered the questions or not. You know, it's voluntary and it's also sponsored by the NIH as part of my career development award. Um, it takes about 15 minutes, you know, to a half an hour to complete, and I think that largely depends on um, how much people have to say. And people can feel free to say, you know, as little or as much as they would like to. So basically, people who complete the survey are going to answer questions about you know, their experience of seeking health care, any difficulties that they may have had, um, you know, their attitudes, their thoughts, their preferences about the need for mental health services for people with PD, um, and as well as the acceptability of telehealth interventions, so programs you know, being conducted over the phone or over their internet you know, as a method for improving access and quality of care. Um, you know, I think telehealth provides an opportunity to possibly fill in the gaps for some folks, but I also know that there are others that might desire more face-to-face -face interactions. So I'm interested in hearing from people to kind of figure out, you know, who might be interested, you know, in receiving telehealth types of services and who might be more interested, you know, in face-to-face -face programs and if that's the case, you know, if we hear from people who are more interested in face-to-face -face programs, then that would say to me, you know, maybe we need to do more community-based trainings and spread the word in several ways. To repeat one of your comments earlier, then, it's not necessary for a person to participate and answer this particular survey. Uh, to have depression or anxiety. Anyone with the symptoms of Parkinson's is invited to be a participant in this survey effort. That's correct. Um, everybody is, is invited um, and welcome to participate. And, you know, I would like to 
get in the ideal world, you know, as many people um, without depression and anxiety um, answering the questions as people who do have a history. Uh, so that's just as important, I guess, isn't it, to have both those who do and don't. Exactly. And people who have not been um, the recipient of services in the mental health system can provide a ton of valuable information, you know, number one, about why that is, and also about sort of what their needs and preferences might be going forward, um, as well as how they feel about different methods of technology that are available. So I think there's lots of valuable information to be learned from everybody. How will the results of the survey be used? Well, as I sort of alluded to um, a couple of minutes ago, I'm hoping that the information that we get from the survey will be used to support future treatment development efforts. Um, in order to improve the access and quality of care um, for people with Parkinson's. And by treatment development, again, it might be, you know, phone and Internet-based types of treatment programs. It might be more community-based trainings with local providers. Um, it might be more um, general educational efforts. It's likely going to be some combination of all three, but until we get the results in, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the next steps are going to be, but sort of the main reason for doing the survey is really to improve um, treatment development, access, and quality of care. Um, and again, I don't think it's going to be just one thing that needs to be done. I think there are several important things, um, several important pieces of information that we're going to learn, and I hope that this data will really just serve as a springboard you know, to jumpstart those efforts. I have a call to action question. How can interested people participate in doing this survey? So people can participate in one of a variety um, of formats. The survey is available online. Um, people can also call my office and somebody can take them through it question by question over the phone, you know, or they can request that a hard copy be mailed to them. So in terms of locating you know, the online link, um, if that's the method that people are interested in, um, the title of the survey is Barriers to Mental Health Care Utilization in PD. And if somebody just goes onto Google or a search engine and types in the title, several websites will come up that display the link, um, and you can sort of get into the online version in that way. Um, I also can read the link now, um, if you think people would be interested in hearing it, although it's a little bit long. Oh, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, but the, the, so the web address, if you actually want to type it in directly, um, is https colon backslash backslash www.surveymonkey.com backslash s backslash improve care the number four PD. So that's the actual web address, but again, if the title of the survey, Barriers to Mental Health Care Utilization in PD, is Googled, um, it should pull up several sites that you can click on um, and access the link that way. So whatever is easier. Um, and additionally, people who don't feel comfortable completing it online can call my office directly, and my office number is 732. 235-4051 to make other arrangements to complete the survey. We could either set up a time to go over the questions on the phone, or I'd be more than happy to mail out a hard copy you know, with the self-addressed stamped envelope for it to be returned. So do you want to give that phone number one more time? Sure. The number is 
4051. We'll be right back with Roseanne Dupkin after this short break. I'm Robert Rogers. This is Parkinson's Recovery. You're listening to my interview with Dr. Roseanne Dopkin, who is a licensed psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. You can also click on a link that you'll find on the radio program page at the bottom in order to be able to go to the survey website where you can actually take the survey online. At the very end of my description of today's program, it says to participate in a mental health survey for PD, click H-E-R-E, click here. If you'll click on the word here that's uh, in caps and in blue, it'll directly take you to that uh, page. And again, it takes you anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes to complete the survey. I hope everyone listening to this will take the time out to click and to answer the questions. Again, any or all of the questions answered will be of use to Dr. Dopkin and the research that she's actually doing for all of us, for people who had the symptoms of Parkinson's and for those who do not. Parkinson's recovery will be live and in the flesh in San Diego, California from October the 18th through the 20th to offer our one and only jumpstart to wellness program for individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's and their spouses, their partners, or their significant others, or their friends. A person who has the symptoms can bring another individual, and essentially that person comes at no cost whatsoever. So it's a very modest cost to be able to join us. And what you'll do when you decide to join us is you'll be connecting with other individuals who are all doing one thing or another to make a big difference in how they're feeling and how they're able to get sustained relief from their own symptoms. So learn what other people are doing as well as get a whole variety of self-help healing tools that will make a huge difference in your being able to join others on the road to recovery and get sustained relief from your symptoms. So Jumpstart to Wellness, our 2010 program, is in San Diego, California, October 18th through 20th. Uh, you can get more information by going to our main website, which is parkinsonsrecovery.com. You will see a link there that says Jumpstart. Click there, and you'll get the full details, or call the toll-free number, and I'd be delighted to answer any and all questions you might have about what we do, why we do it, and how we do it at Jumpstart to Wellness, which is a totally experiential program that is designed to give each and every participant a jump start. The toll-free number is one 526 4646 That's 877 526-4646. Again, this is Robert Rogers, and this is Parkinson's Recovery. Back to Dr. Dobkin. You mentioned earlier that the idea for the survey stemmed from your past research and clinical experiences treating the psychiatric complications of PD. Can you tell us about some of the more common psychiatric concerns that people with PD might experience? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, the non-motor or psychiatric complications are very common um, in Parkinson's. Um, you know, prevalence estimates, I have to say, you know, the disclaimer is that the actual statistic is going to vary somewhat um, based on where and how these different studies, you know, are conducted. 
but it's been pretty well documented that between 60 to 80 percent of people with Parkinson's might experience, you know, some type of psychiatric or non-motor concern, you know, at some point following their diagnosis. Now, depression is one of the most common, and that can affect up to 50 percent of people. And when I say depression and 50%, just to clarify, you know, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, full-blown major depressive disorder, you know, with somebody, you know, crawled up on the couch all day long and they can't function, but we're talking about depressive symptoms that are distressing to people, that get in their way, that make their life harder, that kind of slow them down more than they need to be slowed down. Um, so depressive symptoms that are bothersome to people, even if they don't look like, you know, the type of major depression um, that might be portrayed, you know, in the movies or on television, um, is included, you know, in the 50% number. So the 50% includes people who do have full-blown major depression, as well as people who may have more minor forms of depression um, that are still very clinically significant to them. Um, so that was sort of a mouthful. So in general, I guess what I'm trying to emphasize there is that depression is very common and it may affect up to 50% of folks with Parkinson's, but about maybe half of those people have full-blown major depression and the other half um, have less severe symptoms, but they're symptoms that nonetheless still really get in the way and make life harder for them. Uh, you know, in addition to depression, you know, anxiety, sleep problems, fatigue, and some cognitive changes are also quite common. So I really want to underscore that it's incredibly important for people to be proactive and to initiate conversations with their healthcare providers about these symptoms if you're experiencing them. You know, a lot of people suffer in silence and there's no need to suffer in silence. You know, even though research in this area is really just beginning to develop, there are things that can be done now um, to improve how you're feeling, how you're functioning, and your quality of life. You know, so if you're having any of these concerns, there's no need to wait, you know, for the results of the next study to come out. I think it's the time to start to be proactive and to start, you know, talking about what's going on, you know, with your doctors, with people in your life in order to figure out, you know, what the next steps are um, that can be taken to get some symptom relief. You mentioned that depression is very common with uh, Parkinson's disease, and it sounds like some people may not even realize they're depressed. What are some warning signs or red flags for depression that people should be mindful of? Well, that's a really important question, um, and I think it's, it's very, very important to, to be aware that depression manifests itself differently um, in everybody. So I might interview 10 folks on one day with depression, and they may have some features in common, but then also a lot of really important differences. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's very heterogeneous in its presentation, and not all people have the same symptoms. You know, that being said, the main things that we look for are, you know, feelings of sadness. And, you know, I have to say in my experience, often people don't relate to the word sad per se, but they might say they feel low, they feel blue, you know, their mood is not as good as they'd like it to be, they feel discouraged about the future. Um, all of those adjectives um, are warning signs. Um, that you might want to take a closer look, you know, at how you're feeling and how you're coping. Um, 
Usually, if somebody's mood is not quite as good as they'd like it to be, if they're feeling helpless or hopeless, um, you know, guilty or worthless, there's other symptoms that go with it. So oftentimes when there's a mood change, uh, some things that might accompany that are loss of interest in doing things, you know, not enjoying the things you once loved as much as you used to, you know, not having a zest for life. Sleep disturbance. Um, can be very common. And it could be sleep disturbance in either direction. Some people have a really hard time falling asleep. Um, others might not be able to stay asleep through the night or they find their sleepless is very restless and disturbed. Still others might wake up early in the morning and not be able to get back to sleep for the final time. And then on the other end of the sleep spectrum, you know, some people come in and they say, well, now they're sleeping 14 hours a day, you know, instead of seven. So it could be insomnia or hypersomnia. You know, the same thing goes for appetite. Um, some people really start to have a lot of carbohydrate cravings and they really want, you know, the ice cream and the potatoes and, um, you know, the, the cake and the cookies when they're feeling depressed and they tend to overeat. Others experience a loss of appetite and food sort of loses its pleasure for them. They're not as interested in eating. They don't look forward to it. You know, maybe people have to push them to eat. So appetite can go either way. You know, concentration difficulties, sometimes memory difficulties can be exacerbated if somebody's feeling depressed. Uh, you know, I think I mentioned earlier that sometimes people tend to feel very guilty. They might start to ruminate about things. Um, that gets tied in with depression as well. Uh, feeling really down on yourself, you know, in very extreme cases, um, having feelings that life is not worth living. And I should say that if people um, do have feelings that life is not worth living, that's something that needs to be taken, um, you know, very seriously and discussed with your doctor, you know, as soon as possible because that's not something that we want to um, let go because that, that really does warrant, you know, more serious um, clinical attention sooner rather than later. Fatigue is another one that I may have left out that can also accompany um, depression. And again, I should mention that not everybody is going to have all of those symptoms. Um, most people have some combination of them. Some people have all. Some have just two or three. Um, what's really important to think about when you're evaluating whether or not you might be somebody that's struggling with depression um, is are the symptoms that you're noticing is this a change for you? You know, is this different from how um, you, know, you normally feel or how you would like to feel? Um, so do these symptoms really indicate a change from your previous level of functioning or your uh, you know, previous emotional state? And then in addition to that, you know, how much are the symptoms kind of getting in your way, slowing you down, you know, making life harder for you? You know, if you're noticing some impairment from the symptoms, if it's harder to, to get through a newspaper article, if you, you know you just don't want to socialize anymore, so you're canceling plans with your friends and your family members, you know that's another red flag. You know that something should probably be done about how you're feeling. Um, and last but not least, you know how much are these symptoms bothering you? Um, distress is a good indication that maybe further steps are warranted to get some help for yourself or at least to figure out what some good treatment options might be. So again, to underscore, you know, not everybody who has depression is going to have the exact same symptoms. 
is very heterogeneous. People may present with different clusters of symptoms. But sim symptoms that are uncomfortable for you, um, symptoms that are impairing you, slowing you down, and really representing a change from how things used to be, those are real important red flags um, that need to be considered and brought to your doctor's attention to see, you know, what options are out there to help you, you know, to feel and function more effectively. And all symptoms that bother people um, and that get in the way of having a happy, productive life are symptoms that warrant attention, even if it's not a full-blown, you know, quote-unquote major depressive disorder. In your opinion, why is depression underdiagnosed and undertreated in PD? Um, so, really great question. And yes, in my opinion, <laughs> this is my opinion. I should um, preface it, preface my comments by saying that. Um, so, I think there's several factors um, that play into this phenomenon. Um, I think the first is that there is an overlap of symptoms. Um, between depression itself and the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So for example, um, I think maybe one symptom I forgot to mention a few minutes ago when we were talking about the symptoms of depression is that depression tends to kind of slow people down. They might move slower, they might talk slower, they might think slower. Parkinson's itself um, can also lead to those types of symptoms. You know, fatigue is something that comes with both conditions as well. Sleep disturbance, you know, is something that comes with both conditions also. So while we know that insomnia is a clear associated symptom of depression, you know, insomnia can also occur in Parkinson's even for folks um, who don't experience any depressive symptoms. So a lot of times I think that the diagnosis of depression, you know, might be missed by healthcare professionals as well as by the person with Parkinson's is because the depressive symptoms get misattributed to the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And there was actually um, an expert consensus panel that met a few years back, you know, down at the NIH to try to bring some resolution to this issue and to improve the diagnosis and detection of depression in Parkinson's. And what this expert consensus panel recommended was that if somebody is reporting, you know, one of the classic signs of depression in terms of sadness or low mood. So if there's a clear mood disturbance that's present for the person um, or a clear loss of interest that's a definite change um, from the person's past interest level, any other symptom that's reported, be it insomnia, appetite change, concentration problems, whatever the case might be, should be counted towards the diagnosis of depression. So again, what the panel is recommending is that if there's a clear mood disturbance, um, you know, the person is feeling sad, they're feeling pessimistic, they're feeling worthless. So one of those more cognitive symptoms of depression is clearly present, or there's a clear, profound loss of interest and enjoyment, then count any other symptom that's being observed towards the mood disorder. And the idea is that inclusive approach, as it's called, will help to improve the rate of detection. Because the theory behind it is, is even though both Parkinson's and depression can both cause, you know, let's say fatigue or sleep disturbance, 
if the person's also reporting depressed mood, at least some of the variability um, in, let's say, the sleep disturbance or the fatigue is likely going to be driven you know, by the mood disturbance. Um, so it's better to, to pick it up and to treat it. So that was a long way of saying that I think the overlap of symptoms is, is one factor that maybe has led um, to lower rates of detection. Um, I think another important factor is that it's really important that everybody's speaking the same language. And like I mentioned earlier, oftentimes people will say, no, I don't feel sad, but yes, I feel blue, or yes, I feel discouraged. And when we're talking to our doctors or talking to one another, we really need to be sure um, that we are on the same page in terms of the language that we're using. You know, I've sat in my office with folks and have done, you know, an initial diagnostic assessment with a person. They clearly um, have major depression and could benefit from some services and intervention. And then I might hand them a self-report questionnaire to fill out after the interview, and they'll circle, I do not feel sad. And I'll go back and I'll say, well, wait a second. You know, I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly and that we've got accurate information here. And, you know, we were just talking for the past hour about how you're feeling pretty crappy and you don't look forward to things anymore and it's really uncomfortable and you cry all the time. But then you circled, you know, I don't feel sad. Um, so can, can you help me to understand this? And more times than not, the response I get back is, well, I don't really relate to the word sad. It's, it's more blue or down in the dump, uh. but it's not sad. Um, so it's really important that everybody's on the same page in terms of their language. Um, you know, I also think that there's a myth out there, you know, or a misconception that Parkinson's equals depression, and it most certainly doesn't have to. Um, you know, from what I've heard from the patient side of things is that people come in saying, well, of course I'm depressed. I've, I have Parkinson's, and there's nothing I can do about it. So, you know, the treatment is sort of pointless, and, you know, that's certainly not the case at all. Um, Parkinson's does not have to equal depression. Um, you know, I mentioned the 50% number earlier, and even though that's high, you know, that, that's not 100%. Which goes to show that it's not just having the diagnosis that's causing the depression. It's not just, let's say, um, you know, a neurobiological process that's common um, to both conditions. You know, that that certainly might be part of it for some people, but it's certainly not the whole story. You know, how people react to things, how people think about themselves and their situation, what they do or don't do, you know, in response to having the Parkinson's symptoms all play a critical role, you know, in, in how they feel. So I think a myth that, you know, everybody who has Parkinson's is depressed certainly can be a barrier, um, you know, from the, the patient side of things that might prevent people seeking treatment. Uh, although I'm certainly hoping that the survey will, will shed some more light on whether or not that's actually the case. Um, so I guess my, my final point to that is I think that there's barriers that we don't have a complete understanding of yet um, that are also influencing the rate of, of diagnosis and accurate detection and treatment. Um, hopefully, you know, additional information about those barriers coupled with, you know, more routine screenings at doctor's appointments um, you know, maybe even additional trainings about how to best assess um, depression in people with Parkinson's can also go a long way towards improving, you know, diagnosis, detection, and, you know, more effective treatment. 
right back with Dr. Roseanne Dapkin, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry from the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey after this short break. What types of things can you do to get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's and how do you figure out what you need to do? You can obviously listen to my radio show and as you can see from each and every week's interview, I either interview healthcare professionals like Dr. Dobkin or I interview individuals who have all sorts of stories to tell about what they're doing to get well. You can read entries in the Parkinson's Recovery blog. And on the blog, I always document the emails that I receive from individuals with their permission who talk about what they're doing to get relief from their symptoms. You can also join us in San Diego at our Jumpstart to Wellness program. We begin on the evening of the 18th of October. We go all day, or I should say during the day, uh, on the 19th and also all day on the 20th. It's a jump start in the sense that it gives you a clear sense of the next steps that are going to be the most helpful in being able to get sustained relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. It's a powerful event, and I invite each and every individual who's ready to get a jump start to join us and others who are on the road to recovery. And now back to Dr. Dobkin. Can you explain how negative thinking patterns contribute to depression and may exacerbate the symptoms of PD? Sure. Um, actually, I'll probably tackle that question, you know, in two parts. First, I'll talk a little bit about um, how thoughts contribute to mood, and then we'll talk about some applications um, to the symptoms of Parkinson's. So in the cognitive model that I mentioned earlier, it's not events or situations themselves that lead to depression, but it's really our thoughts about it, so how we're interpreting things, the meaning that we're making out of something, the value that we're assigning to situation that drives how we're feeling about it. Um, you know, nothing really means anything until we interpret it, and it's those interpretations that influence our emotions and our behaviors. Um, so just there's some examples I like to go through to, to, to sort of illustrate this point a little bit more clearly. Um, so I just like to talk about, you know, the newlywed couple. So let's say you've got this newlywed couple and they have their first fight. Um, now, we all know that fighting is not considered a positive experience in general, that nobody really likes to fight. But if the wife walks away from the fight saying, oh, my goodness, our marriage is over. You know, I need to go see my divorce lawyer tomorrow because we're doomed. She's probably going to be feeling very discouraged, very hopeless, and very depressed um, in response to that interpretation um, of the situation. She's also probably more likely behaviorally to withdraw, you know, to go slam the door and sit in the bedroom alone for the rest of the night. You know, alternatively, if the husband's interpretation of the situation is, well, you know, I wish we didn't fight because it's not ideal to fight, um, but everybody has some conflict once and again. Um, you know, our relationship is strong. We can certainly weather our first fight, and we will work on our communication, and I'm sure we'll fight less frequently going forward. Same exact situation, but the husband has got a very different interpretation of the situation. So while he's probably not feeling happy um, that they had the argument, he's probably also not feeling as hopeless and discouraged as the wife might be feeling because of her interpretation of the situation. He's probably also less likely you know, to isolate and withdraw for the rest of the night. 
So again, it's the interpretation that really leads to the emotional and the behavioral responses um, that people often exhibit in the face you know, of stressful um, or negative life events. You know, another example that I sometimes use that has come up a lot for me um, you know, in my work with people with Parkinson's, um, I, we, we go through an example of, of two patients who were newly diagnosed and different reactions they might have based on their thoughts about the situation and the diagnosis. And again, not that anybody would like, you know, receiving this diagnosis, but it's a question of how the extremes in our thinking can often lead to different emotional reactions. So as an example, um, if person number one, you know, receives information about the diagnosis and says, thinks to themselves, interprets it, you know, my life is ruined, I have no control, an interpretation like that is really going to fuel some negative feelings and some negative behavioral responses. You know, in addition to feeling hopeless, helpless, and depressed, somebody thinking I have no control, my life is over, is very much likely to start to isolate, to not be proactive um, in terms of taking important steps to optimize their health. If person number two has the interpretation, you know, I certainly wish this didn't happen, but I know that I can still have a meaningful life um, even as I cope with the symptoms of Parkinson's, that person is probably going to feel more hopeful. They're going to be more proactive um, in their own health care. They're probably going to continue to value their interests and their social relationships. So I know that I'm presenting, you know, sort of overly simplistic examples, but I think the take-home message is that, you know, our thoughts directly influence how we feel as well as what we do and what we don't do. Um, you know, and Parkinson's can be challenging enough to cope with under optimal circumstances. You know, excessive negative thinking is really just going to stand in the way of successful coping and make everyday living that much more difficult. You know, we know um, study after study after study has shown us that depression can block, you know, optimal functioning in people with Parkinson's. And negative thinking is a major player in depression. Uh, it's not the only player, but it's a major player, and therefore, you know, it's an optimal target for intervention. You know, so that being said, um, I'm a big football fan, so forgive the analogy if you're not a sports fan, <laughs> but um, like negative thoughts or just your thinking is like the quarterback of your team. So the quarterback is not the whole team. You still need good running backs and you know, good wide receivers and offensive line and a really great defense. Um, but if your quarterback can't throw, your team is not going to win the game. So if your thoughts aren't balanced, it's going to be really hard um, to function and to cope as optimally as, as is possible um, with Parkinson's. Um, you know, we know, you know, not only um, is depression linked with decreased quality of life and you know, faster progression of physical symptoms in Parkinson's. We also know that day to day, it can exacerbate tremor. It can exacerbate um, motor fluctuations. So if there wasn't enough reason, um, that's some additional reasons to really work on getting negative thinking and depression under control. What about the relationship between people's behaviors and their mood? Well, if cognitions, um, are the quarterback, you know, I'd say behaviors can be the, the running back and the wide receivers. I mean, they're another really important um, area for intervention. And 
they don't necessarily exist, you know, in isolation of thoughts. You know, as I mentioned, you know, thoughts can influence behavior, but intervening on the behavioral level without even touching thoughts can also be really helpful. So let me tell you a little bit about what I mean by that. So in general, um, you know, especially in the face of starting to have symptoms of Parkinson's disease, you know, that, that can be life circumstances that lead to changes in the structure of somebody's day. So if people, either because of life circumstances or personal choice, start spending less time in activities that were once really rewarding or pleasurable or meaningful for them in some way, they're going to be more likely to, to get depressed. You know, if people start spending less time, um, you know, with friends or family members or in other social outlets that were once very rewarding, um, they're going to be more likely to get depressed. And the reason why that happens is because there's sort of a decrease um, in exposure to activities that provide people with the opportunity to get reinforcement um, from the environment, you know, to feel good about themselves, to feel like they're accomplishing something. So when you take away or you minimize your exposure to things and people that allow you to feel good about yourself or that give you pleasure, you know, depression is an unfortunate um, consequence of that change. And then it's sort of a vicious cycle because when you start feeling sad, it, it's more common then to even further decrease your time in meaningful activities and that leads to further depression and then you're even less likely to do things and you're getting less reinforcement from your world and sort of um, less satisfaction and feelings of accomplishment. It, it sort of spins around, um, you know, in a vicious cycle. What non-medication approaches do you use to help people manage their mood? Well, the list um, is diverse and varied, so I'm going to just hit, um, you know, some of the highlights, um, but, but again, this is probably on some levels going to sound like an oversimplification, but maybe we can just let people's appetites, you know, to read up on some of these areas on their own. Um, one of the first things I always start with is exercise. Um, Exercise really has been shown, you know, to boost people's mood, to help decrease stress. Um, and in terms of Parkinson's, you know, more and more and more data is coming out to suggest that exercise may actually be neuroprotective. Um, everybody can do something. You don't have to run a marathon. You know, you can walk around the block ten minutes three times a day, or you can do yoga um, or seated exercise or some type of stretching. But there's something for everybody. Um, I have yet to encounter somebody that couldn't become an active participant in an appropriate um, exercise program. And different things are going to be appropriate for different people, so it's very important, you know, to listen to your body and to be very aware of what you can and cannot do and to really respect those limitations. But again, it's in my experience that everybody can do something. I've worked with people um, with more severe levels of disability and they did 20 minutes of seated exercise and they, they were really happy with that um, once they got started. So exercise is always number one on my list. Um, and along those lines, you're just becoming more active. So a term psychologists call behavioral activation. And when I say more active, I don't mean you know being busy for the sake of being busy because that's not going to help you or anybody else. But I mean really increasing the amount of time that you spend in you know, meaningful or, or social activities, things that at least have the potential um, to be rewarding and pleasurable. And sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you've got to test out new things 
see what it's like. Um, you know, go to a book club. If it's great, go back. Um, if it's the most boring experience you've ever encountered, you know, try going to a coffee shop instead. But, you know, try new things. Try to increase what's going on day to day um, that's meaningful and rewarding for you. But, again, it's not just being busy. You know, I was really busy last Saturday. I went to the grocery store, and then I did um, – a trip to the dry cleaner, and then I went to the bank. That was busy. I'm not sure they were the most pleasurable three hours I've ever spent. So, you know, it's, it's meaning and reward, but not so much just trying to move from one thing to the next to the next. And I know in the context of Parkinson's, you know, circumstances have changed, things have changed, um, and there might be some or maybe a lot of limitations that exist now that didn't exist in the past, and they certainly need to be taken into account. Um, but I guess a couple of important points about that, you know, it's, it's been common in my experience that when people are depressed and when they're anxious that they might overestimate, um, you know, the extent of their physical limitations. So, of course, you want to listen to your body and you don't want to do things that would be safe or inappropriate, but at the same time, you don't want to sell yourself short. Um, you know, in terms of what you may or may not be able to do. You know, I worked with a runner, and the person couldn't run marathons anymore, but they had stopped exercising all completely. It's like, well, just because you can't run marathons doesn't mean you can't go for a walk, or there might not be other things that you can do. Um, so, you know, again, don't overestimate your limitations. Um, you know, something else to consider, ways to modify activities. Uh, I had another person that I worked with who was a firefighter, and he really loved being part, you know, of the fire department and everything that that represented for him. He couldn't fight fires anymore, but he found a way to stay very involved by coordinating and organizing fundraising efforts for the department. So, you know, there's lots of things that people can do. It might be a question of modifying old activities, you know, or maybe finding new ones, you know, testing out new things that might not have been part of your life in the past, but they might be hobbies or interests that you're willing to consider going forward. Um, you know, not being able to do what you used to do doesn't mean that you can't do anything. Um, and I think that's a trap, a pitfall, that oftentimes people fall into if they're struggling with depression or anxiety. Um, you know, and along those lines, I think maintaining social connections and social relationships can be really important. You know, in response to that, something that people have brought to my attention is they say, you know, Dr. Dobkin, this makes sense and, and I get it, but, you know, I'm depressed and I just I don't feel like doing it. Um, so there's another very common phrase, you know, in the field of psychology and, and behavior therapy. It goes something like this. You have to act according to your goals, not your feelings. It is a myth. You don't need to feel like something to do it. Um, you know, under normal circumstances, feelings are terrific guides um, to what we should be doing or maybe what we shouldn't be doing. You know, if we think back um, thousands and thousands of years ago, if there was the caveman in the woods and the bear was approaching and that caveman felt anxious, he ran away. That was a really smart, um, you know, really adaptive response. But depression and anxiety aren't normal circumstances. So sometimes the signals that our body sends us when we're feeling depressed or anxious, they can mislead us. Um, so during times of more depression, more stress, more anxiety, sometimes it can be important you know, to let your goals drive your behavior. 
um, versus the internal feeling. And with time, um, that internal feeling will kick in, but maybe the first or second or tenth time, it's really the goal that's driving the behavior while you're waiting for that internal motivation um, to, to really start to come into play. So, you know, as an example, somebody may have said to me, well, I know I should go for a walk, but I, sh I don't feel like going for the walk. So I might say to them, you know, well, what are some reasons? Why might it be important for you, you know, to go outside and take that walk? And then they might say, okay, well, it'll, um, it'll improve my physical functioning. I'll feel good about myself after I go, and I'll probably feel less fatigued. Um, so, okay, those are great reasons. Let's focus on those reasons. Let's, let's focus on that goal and let that goal guide you going out for a walk versus just saying, well, I don't really feel like doing it, so I can't. So behaviors, you know, increasing meaningful and social activities and exercise to the extent possible is, is certainly where I usually start with people. Um, you know, certainly in addition to the behaviors, like I alluded to a few minutes ago, I spend a lot of time working with people to identify their negative thoughts. And then once we learn how to identify them, we want to pause them. And after we pause them, we want to examine them more closely, you know, to see if they're as true as they feel. Um, and if they turn out to not be as true as they feel, to try to replace them with a more balanced thought. You know, we all have thoughts all the time, and most of us are not stopping to think about our thinking. We automatically accept our thoughts as true. Um, but in the context of depression, oftentimes the negative thoughts that we have are more influenced by emotion than by fact. You know, not all negative thoughts. Oftentimes people might have some negative thoughts, you know, that are true. And if we were to examine a thought and it proved to be true, you know, we would say, okay, well, how can we tackle this? Can we take a problem-solving approach to dealing with this issue? But more times than not, when we look closely at the types of negative thoughts people have when they're depressed, they tend to not be as accurate as they feel. Um, you know, so as an example, I worked with someone and he came into my office one day and he shared that he was labeling himself as helpless. And so when I followed up and I said, well, you know, Joe, can you tell me that's not his real name, <laughs> um, what, why you were viewing yourself, labeling yourself as helpless, he relayed the story um, where over the weekend he had gotten up you know, in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And when he was in there, he froze up and he couldn't get back into the bedroom. So I said, well, gee, Joe, you know, wh what did you do? You know, did you sleep on the bathroom floor all night? He said, no, of course not. He said, I had my cell phone in my pocket because this happens to me all the time. And I just dialed my house number on my cell phone and my wife answered and she got out of bed and she came and she helped me, you know, back into the bedroom and everything was fine. So I said, huh. So even though in that moment you physically couldn't move, you weren't helpless because you had the forethought to carry your cell phone with you and then to use it when you were stuck in that situation. Um, and that really had a powerful effect on him when he was able to recognize that even though there were a few minutes where he wasn't able to move effectively, he wasn't helpless. There were other actions and other steps um, that he could take to really be in control and to really help himself through that situation. Um, so I think that just underscores that oftentimes our initial appraisal of a situation isn't as true as it feels, and sometimes it can be really beneficial to take a step back um, and to look at our thoughts a little bit more closely. 
you know, cognitive therapy sometimes gets a bad rap um, as being the power of positive thinking, and it's, it's really not that. It's, it's realistic thinking. Um, I want people to have balanced thoughts. I want people to view, you know, the, the negatives in context with the positives. Um, not the negatives in place of the positives. And oftentimes in depression, there's this tendency to really magnify um, what's not going right um, and to minimize the positive. And we want to view the positive and negative in balance. So it's really about having realistic thoughts, um, not about having positive thoughts. Sometimes the realistic thought is a little bit more positive than the initial thought. Sometimes it's just more balanced. So in terms of strategies, so, so far we've got exercise, we've got trying to get more activated behaviorally, we have learning how to catch and examine your thoughts. Um, you know, problem solving is another big thing that can be really helpful for people. You know, really working one-on-one -on -one to try to figure out how can we plan around your best time of day to get things done. Um, if you're concerned about cutting food so you're not going out to dinner anymore, well, can you still go out but just order things that don't need to be cut up or foods that are easier to eat? Um, can we have plans in place about how we're going to handle symptom flare-ups if they occur? You know, what are some ways you can pace your activities? Can we make sure we're setting appropriate goals um, and not unrealistic, unachievable goals day to day? Plus, you know, maybe it can be helpful to place less rigid demands on ourselves and be more flexible and, and more kind towards ourselves and how we approach things. So problem solving is another great um, non-medication strategy. I also do a lot of relaxation training with people, um, and the specific type varies based on need and, you know, personal interest, but I think daily practice of some type of relaxation, you know, if it's visualization, if it's progressive muscle relaxation, if it's some form of deep or diaphragmatic breathing, just has tremendous beneficial effects um, on how people feel and on how they cope. So usually what I suggest to people in terms of relaxation training is to practice whatever you're comfortable with. There's no particular technique um, that people have to follow to the T, but to find something that works for you practice it 15 minutes a day when you can set aside some uninterrupted quiet time to get good at it. And then once you're good at it, you can use it on the spot um, when anxiety or stress really rears its ugly head. Um, so that's probably um, an overview of some of the main things that, that I do with folks in order to help them cope with their symptoms. We'll be right back with Dr. Dalkin after this short break. Parkinson's Recovery provides a variety of services, information, and support programs for individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's. We have one main website and a large number of supporting websites. You can always get a guide to uh, find out what we're doing and what information you might want to need by going to our main website. And you do that by just remembering two words. You have to remember the word Parkinson's, and then you also need to remember the word recovery. If you'll type those two words into any search engine, you'll find that the first search result is parkinsonsrecovery.com. That is the website. Click on that, and you'll find a very simple main page that provides links 
to the many different types of services and research uh, support uh, programs that we provide, our blog, our symptom tracker, our uh, resources uh, and links to other books and informational resources, our books uh, that have been written, our membership website, etc., etc., you also, of course, have a link to Jumpstart to Wellness, which we're holding in San Diego, California, on October 18th through 20th. I hope each and every one of you can join us for that transformational experience. This is Robert Rogers, and I am currently interviewing Dr. Roseanne Dobkin from the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Now back to Dr. Dobkin. What other research programs are you currently offering to help people with PD more effectively manage their mood without medication? Well, the one main program that is still ongoing right now is a spin-off of the control trial um, that I had mentioned earlier in the show where we had looked at the effectiveness of a cognitive therapy treatment package for depression in people with PD. Um, there was a lot of interest in that program and again, the preliminary results looked very promising. And there was also a need that was brought to my attention for people to participate in such a program, even if they weren't um, in New Jersey and able to get to my office. So as a result, um, we added another arm to the grant where we're testing out the effectiveness of providing the cognitive behavioral therapy for depression to people over the phone. Everybody would get the exact same treatment program um, that we offered in the in-person research study, which involves 10 one-hour weekly sessions um, of cognitive behavioral therapy. They're all conducted over the phone. And in addition to that, there are four separate sessions that are more psychoeducational in nature that would be available to a support person um, in the person with Parkinson's life, you know, if that support person was interested um, as well in participating in the research program. Um, and in terms of, you know, appropriate support people, anybody's an appropriate <laughs> support person. So it's really, is there somebody that you talk to on a regular basis um, that's sort of been going through life with you or going through your most recent experiences with you that might also benefit from being part of the research program. And we do a lot of education with a support person, you know, about Parkinson's, about some of the psychiatric concerns that might come up, and sort of ways in which they can be most helpful um, with helping you to manage some of the issues that you might be dealing with. So again, um, the phone therapy program is the one other study right now um, that we are actively recruiting for and eligible people will receive um, 10 sessions of individual CBT over the phone um, at no cost as part of this research program. And how do people find out more about the, the participating in that program? Um, if people are interested um, in more information, they can most certainly call me directly. And again, my office number is 732-235-4051. And if people leave a voicemail, either myself um, or one of the colleagues from my team will do our best to return your call in 24 hours. 
So as you explained, it may be people will say to themselves, oh, I don't feel like calling right now. But you're suggesting, well, the goal is to feel better. So let me call. <laughs> Take some action. <laughs> Let's do something about it. So uh, tell the phone number one more time. So the phone number is 732-235-4051. And people can feel free to call about the phone therapy program, um, about the survey, or just to get some information about resources that might be um, of use to you in your local community. You've offered some very practical and helpful suggestions to individuals, so this interview has been packed full with very helpful information. What's the one take-home point that you want people to remember so that when they tell their friend, oh, I just heard this fascinating interview, what would you like them to remember about this interview? I'd say, um, you know, the most important take-home message, if I had to pick one, um, is that everybody has got the ability to be proactive in their coping efforts. People do not have to suffer with uncomfortable symptoms and violence. There are lots of things that are in your control, um, lots of areas in which changes can be made to help people to feel better and function more optimally, and you all have got the power and control um, to start making those changes. Anybody at a long distance from you, which means they don't live anywhere near New Jersey, can connect up and learn a great deal from participating in this uh, teleseminar phone program that you just uh, mentioned. If anybody is uh, near you, that is if they live near New Jersey, they may be interested in actually coming to see you as a uh, private patient. How would they go about contacting you to make that happen? Um, the same number, the 732-235-4051, that's my direct line. Um, people can certainly call if they are interested in scheduling an appointment um, as a private patient as well, because in addition to my research, I also do maintain um, a private practice um, through the university where we are able to schedule people um, from local communities for appointments. Dr. Dopkin has indicated to us that in her extensive research, we know that approximately 50% of you out there who are listening to this interview now are depressed. And we also know that taking action is going to make a big difference despite how you feel. So I want to suggest to everyone right now, you need to take action and go to your computer, if you have a computer, and type in the words barriers to mental health care utilization in PD. I'm going to say that one more time. It's the word barriers, B-A-R-R-I-E-R-S, to mental health care utilization in PD. And the survey is going to pop up as a result. Uh, if you'll click that, it's going to take you, tell everybody one more time, how long will it take them to complete the survey? It'll probably take anywhere between 15 minutes and a half an hour. Um, and I think what determines the exact time frame um, is really, I guess, number one, how much people choose to 
to fill out. Most of the survey is just multiple choice and drop-down boxes. If people want to go in and just fill those out, that's perfectly fine. There are also a few areas um, of text boxes where people can write pretty much anything they want, you know, comments, their personal experiences. It's my sense that people who go in and type in the text boxes you know, we'll probably need longer to fill out the survey. But certainly answering the open-ended questions is not a requirement. Um, any information um, that people can provide I think is going to be helpful um, towards the development of future treatments. So if you only have 10 minutes and you go in and do what you can in 10 minutes and just hit the Done button at the end so that we get the results, um, that would be wonderful. And I guess that's one point that I should emphasize is as you scroll through the survey, on the last page, there's a button that says Done. It's really important to click the Done button, even if you don't fill out the whole thing, because that ensures that all the results are transmitted to me. When a person goes to this page then, for example, if it were me, as I understand it, I do not have to tell you that my first name is Robert or that my last name is Rogers, or I don't have to give you my social security number or my credit card number. Is that right? That is correct, and in fact, there's not even a place to provide that information if you wanted to. Um, we do not ask for any um, personal information. So in the text box, please don't tell me your name or your phone number or how I can locate you. Um, you know, you can, my phone number is actually going to appear on the survey, so if you have any questions, I would recommend um, my emails there also, either calling or emailing me separately from the survey so I can in no way connect you to the survey response. Um, and on top of that, in order to really maintain the participants' um, anonymity as well as confidentiality, the actual URL address from your computer is blocked. So there is no way to backtrack and to even figure out what computer or what state the response came from. Um, the only way that we know where participants are located is one survey question is actually, you know, where do you live? And we just ask for the state so we can track to see if there's any trends based on regions of the country. But other than people telling us what state they're in, we have no way to locate them or their computer or their identity in any way. As I look at this survey then, I'm not going to see, okay, thank you for agreeing to participate in this survey. You're going to now have to pay us $25. No. <laughs> this is not that kind of a deal. And as people not that kind of a deal. <laughs> and so as people get into answering the survey, are they going to see pop-up windows that say buy this or buy that or there are no advertisements <laughs> in any way, shape, or form on the survey. <laughs> I just want to be clear to everybody. Obviously, those are going to be the answers to all these questions. This is something you can do to help the research study so that we can learn a lot more about barriers to health care. And it will also help you because, as Dr. Dopkin has just explained, just by taking action, you're going to feel a lot better. So if you're feeling a little bit down in mood right now, feeling like you don't, you don't really uh, feel like doing anything else, forget it. <laughs> Go ahead and take some action. Do it now. If you say, oh, I'll do it later or I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it next week, it's not going to get done. So to your computer and type in barriers to mental health care utilization in PD. The particular link is going to come up at the very top of your search results. Click that and then go ahead and take uh, uh, 10, uh, 15, 20, or if you'd like 30 minutes to actually answer this survey. If you don't have a computer, and I know some of you listening to this don't have a computer, please, if you would, Dr. Dr. 
Microsoft can tell everybody the phone number they can call, and you will either ask them the questions over the phone, which is the easy way to do it, or you can actually send them the uh, paper survey. That's correct. And my number is 732-235-4051. Roseanne Dobkin, thank you very much for being our wonderful guest today and telling us all about depression, anxiety, and what people with the symptoms of Parkinson's can do to uh, address those kinds of problems. Well, thank you very much for having me. I want to underscore an offer that Dr. Dobkin made during my pre-recorded interview, 10 sessions on cognitive behavioral therapy at no cost for her phone therapy study. Of course, you do have to enroll in the study, and there will be some pre-post questions that she'll ask, but that's pretty serious assistance that's given at no cost. So please consider the possibility that you can take action and, and, and obtain some incredible therapy at no cost from an individual who clearly is very, very experienced in working with individuals who have the symptoms of Parkinson's uh, from the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. It's an incredible opportunity. I'm sure that the opportunity uh, to enroll in the phone therapy study is not going to be endless. So pick up that phone now. I don't mean in five minutes. I mean now. Just pick it up. Call Dr. Dobkin, leave a message if she doesn't answer live, and just express your interest in participating in the phone therapy study. If you're interested, if, if you're called to learn more about how you can use cognitive behavioral therapy to help yourself. I also really hope that everyone listening to this will answer her survey. It's a part of her research. It will lead to other wonderful possible ways to actually get some additional training for yourself. So participate. Uh, there's uh, no reason why not to, and it's probably going to help if you're a bit depressed. It'll probably help you feel a lot better. Her phone number again is 732-235-4051. If you want to know more about Jumpstart to Wellness, the procedure is simple. Call me. It's a toll-free number. That also only takes the opportunity to pick up a phone and dial the numbers. 877 526-4646, and I would be delighted to answer any and all questions that you might have about participating in our Jump Start to Wellness program offered by Parkinson's Recovery in San Diego, California, October the 18th through October the 20th. Our program last year was an incredible success, and the individuals who were in attendance wound up finding that they were soundly entered into a road of recovery that has resulted in incredible returns with regard to how they're feeling today. Join us. It will be a transformative experience for us all. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all of the women are smart, all of the men are handsome, and all of the children are truly loved. Know by virtue of the fact you are listening to this program that you are on the road to recovery. Good day. <laughs>